in that name. The only name. The name above all names. We can come boldly, confidently to you, Father. Because of Jesus. Because of what he did for us. Based on his work and work alone, we can come always to you. Trusting in the power of his blood. That not only cleanses, but also speaks for us. Not against us. We come this morning and we surrender ourselves. And your church, your people here everywhere. Into thy hands, O Lord. The blood, the blood, the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. Oh, we receive mercy. We receive your grace. It's all that we need today. Your grace is sufficient for us, Lord. For everyone. There will be nothing, anyone, anywhere your children will face today which your grace will not equip them to overcome. So we receive your grace by faith. Now as we look into your word, you will continue to teach us and prepare us for the day of all days, the coming of your Lord, your Son, Jesus Christ. Prepare us, O Lord. Let it be not just mere knowledge, but it be life. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 We go back to Revelation, our study, chapter 2. The longest letter written to the fourth church, chapter 18, verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, Okay, this is the longest letter. Though Thyatira, actually, if you look at history in Turkey, it was one of the smallest towns. Okay, so it's not one of the big places, unlike Ephesus and all this, one of the smallest, the least, least prominent among those seven church, seven towns, not the churches, but it gets the, the longest letter. Because the issues here in the church are the most serious. And therefore, the indictment also is the most severe. And therefore, his introduction itself is as the Son of God, who has eyes like the flame of fire, which means it sees everything. Nothing misses his scrutiny. And his feet are like fine brass or bronze, ready to trample out every vestige or appearance of sin. That's how he's, he's introduced. Okay, so please go through and check his introduction to the seven churches. Introductions are different. The same God speaking. But the introduction itself is different because it's he's, he's introducing himself according to the situation in the church. Okay, So it's also like the I am's in the Bible. God will introduce himself to us according to our need. God will also introduce to us according to the indictments. Okay. So on the surface, if you look, actually, this one part of the church, they seems to be really rocking. They have the works. They have love, which Ephesus did not have. They have service. They have faith. And they have patience. And not all that, they seem to be in increasing order. That's, that's a really good 
commendation they have. They got it all. If you look at it, they got it all. And at the end, he will say, just hang on to it. You're good. You're good. You don't need to do anything more like this seems to be in so many ways. A complete church. And this seems to be increasing. Okay? And where Ephesus failed, Thyatira succeeded. Okay? Where they failed in love, Thyatira seems to have succeeded. But also, where Ephesus succeeded, Thyatira failed. In Ephesus 2.2, 2, sorry, uh, Revelation 2.2, 2, you will see about Ephesus. There was one thing. You cannot bear those who are evil. That was a commendation Ephesus received. They were very, 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 what you call, very, very intolerant of evil in their midst and they rooted it out. But in the process, what happens is when we are gung-ho about sin and evil, sometimes we become, uh, we lose our love. We lose our love. That's what happens. And you will see many churches, they are like on A+, plus when it comes to rooting out evil. But if you look over there, you know, something is missing over there. Something is, what happens in the process, they become that's what you, that's why it's not a very easy thing that's why Jesus said the road to life is very very narrow how to balance between legalism and license it is not easy if you go on to this side it's like the balance you have the church of Corinth license and you have the church of Galatia that is legalism how do you maneuver your way through even personally as an individual alone don't look at it as a church Okay, because not just as a church. Look at it as an individual level. How do we balance between these two? On one side, when you try to root out evil, after some time you'll become very legalistic. You'll become like a Pharisee. And the Pharisee was blameless according to the law. But he couldn't tolerate anybody and nobody could tolerate him. Ultimately. Okay. On the other side, if you go to the liberal side, the libertines as you call them, for them their religion is tolerance and ultimately it becomes license. Okay. So how do you maneuver your way through it? So you will see the church in Eph the Ephesus, where they succeeded, Thyatira failed. And where they failed, Thyatira succeeded. But that is not still the norm. The norm is how do you root out evil and still be loving? And the model is Jesus. Jesus is the model. Jesus is the model. Because the other model is, is Moses. The law came through Moses. It only brought judgment and death. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Okay. How he could handle sinners. And the legalistics, he could handle them both. Woe to the legalistic that was the Pharisee. And yet he showed mercy to the sinners and told each one of them, don't sin again. Don't sin again. Okay. Never tolerated sin, but he also knew how to love the sinner and encourage them and help them to come out of it. Okay. So you will see. Thyatira, on the other hand, in verse 19, you will see the problem with Thyatira, on the other hand, was that, uh, and uh, verse 20, because you allow or you tolerate, okay, other NIV will say, you 
uh, honey, can you give me mine first? Yeah. The others can wait. You tolerate. See, tolerance is the, that's, that's actually what happened, you know. So, how do we navigate between these two? This is where we need divine grace. How do we navigate? You need to realize, you know, in leadership, one of the most important thing we need is, we need grace. And we need truth. We need both together. You cannot have grace alone, then you will become liberal. You cannot have truth again, you will become legalistic. How to balance this both? Okay. So the question is, when it comes to confronting evil, how far are you willing to go? How far are you willing to go? Okay. Because then there is a Nomenclature, a person named that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess by her teaching. She misleads my servants. Now you need to realize, okay, I'm getting into dangerous areas, but we shall come to that later. He doesn't say, but that man, Balak, and that man, Nicholas, who brought that, he doesn't talk about. But he's very careful about mentioning the gender here. So gender is an issue here. <laughs> there are gender-related problems. Okay, We'll come to that later. So you have to read it very, very carefully because that verse 20 will address the issue. So the question is, how far are you willing to go? <coughs> And there is a person from history, I'm almost definitely sure, this woman's name is not Jezebel in Revelation in the church. But she is caricatured by a portrait of a very, very infamous woman in the Old Testament. And her name is Jezebel. You will realize. In First Kings chapter 18 and verse 40, this is Elijah. Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Okay, You need to realize when it came to confronting evil, Elijah was ruthless. Ruthless. Okay, was ruthless. But it through, goes through a process. It goes through a process in the Mount Carmel. Once the whole process is finished and the fire falls, evil is very clearly identified and separated. And they are ruthlessly. But if you go to chapter 19 and read 1 to 3. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. When he saw that, he arose and ran for his life. Elijah choked. Okay, Elijah choked. You need to understand, when he came to confronting, it is not that when he heard that, when he saw that, when he saw that, all that didn't make any difference to Jezebel. It did not make any difference to Jezebel 
all that. She's heard the whole thing what happened on Mount Carmel, including the fact all her prophets have been killed. And you would expect her to tone down a little. Let us come to the negotiating table. Or she repents and turns around. Nothing of that sort happens. Okay? And you will realize the prophet ran. The prophet ran. Okay? So you need to realize this is what happens. This is what happens, you know. So you need to realize <coughs> Jezebel is not just a person or a personality. It's also a spirit. Okay? There are spirits that are after people. There are spirits that are after anointings. Okay, please need to understand. There are spirits that are after people. There are spirits that are after anointings. So those spirits will come back in generation after generation when that anointing comes. So you need to realize that spirit of Jezebel comes back during the time of John the Baptist because the same anointing has come. The next thing you knew, his head is also gone. Okay. Now the elder or the pastor of the church in Thyatira also chokes. Chokes. Instead of running, he tolerates and he gives. That's all she wants. He takes over. Because this is a combination. Always remember, there is a combination. Jezebel comes with Ahab. Comes with Ahab. Ahab is a very weak person. It's a very weak person. So Jezebel and Ahab. So the thing is, the indictment is against the pastor. He says, you tolerate. Why did he tolerate? Because he was a weak person. So weak person. So he tolerated. So we have to look around because these combinations are very, very dangerous. Because in the Bible, consistently leadership is given to man. But if the man is weak, who will arise? Jezebel will arise. On the other hand, women are called to be strong. They are not called to be weak. But the difference is the woman who is strong should not become Jezebel. She should become Deborah. She's a very strong woman. But she says, you have to lead. You have to lead. Leadership is not given to me. You have to lead. And he says, but I will not go unless you come. She says, fine, but remember this. If you do, if I do what I tell you to do, what will happen is this day, God will not receive glory. The battle will be won, but God will have no glory in it because the glory will go to woman. If the glory goes to woman, it goes to man. It does not go to God. But in every victory, glory should go to God. Okay, so there are pictures in the Bible, in the pictures in the Bible, and we need to understand in the last days, this will again arise. The reason is because in the last day, there is another manifestation of Elijah. In the last days, another manifestation. So you will see this interplay in the last days. And you will realize most men choke when it comes to Jezebel. Choke when it comes to Jezebel. Okay. And that is why you need a person, an anointing. Okay. And a person called Jehu. Okay, there's an anointing upon Elisha, but Elisha doesn't confront Jezebel at all. He doesn't confront Jezebel at all. There's another one, the king of Syria. He does not confront Jezebel. The one who confronts is Jehu. So if you go to Second Kings chapter 9, when Jezebel is confronted, again you look at, okay, 9.30 and 31, 30. 
Okay, God's solution is there. When Jehu had come to Jezreel, remember this is the same place Elijah had come and he choked, he stopped. The anointing was not given for him to stop. The anointing was that he would overtake Ahab and go and finish the job. But when he reached there, he stopped. If you know how he was anointed, he ran faster than the chariot, reached the gates of Jezreel and he stopped. He stopped there. But the anointing was not given for you to stop. Your anointing is given for you to finish the work. And because you did not finish the work, now another generation has to go through it and another generation has to be raised to fight this battle. Which should have? You see, this is how the enemy steals time. Because the enemy knows the biggest casualty of mankind is time. Everybody has only limited time. Nobody is given all the time. So what happens is, when Elijah does not finish the work which is entrusted into his hands, the next generation has to finish your work, they have lost time. They have lost time. And you are delaying everything in the process. Because now Elisha is doing Elijah's work. Well, if Elijah had finished his work, Elijah would have been, Elisha would have got all the time to do his work and without finishing somebody else's work. Okay, so when he comes over there, we will see what happens. When Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. The first thing she does is she puts paint on her eyes, adorned her head and looked through a window. And as Jehu entered at the gate, she said, Is it P. Zimri, murderer of your master? Two things are what Jezebel uses, okay? In verse, no, no, verse 30, she uses seduction. And verse 31, she used intimidation. These are the weapons of Jezebel. Okay. Seduction does not work. Intimidation. We have to be very careful about how this spirit plays out. Okay. It will either use seduction, and if seduction does not work, it will use intimidation or a combination of both. And the solution lies in verse 32. Jehu looked up at the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? So two or three eunuchs looked out at him and he said, throw her down. So they threw her down. In Matthew 19, verse 12, Jesus gives the solution. Okay, 19, 12. There are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. That is a genetic disorder. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. That is for guarding the... Uh, harem and for God um, kings to have loyal people then there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs, not physically but spiritually eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake he who is able to accept him, let it accept so what is God saying? God saying there are people in the kingdom who will be spiritual eunuchs because they will not look at any issues with gender tinted glasses they will be gender neutral in addressing issues. Okay, in this context, he says, he says, you know, because the problem is, you know what, you look at an issue, you don't look at the gender there, because the problem is the issue. Okay, so he says, this is the solution. Because now everything is gender biased in the, in the, in the world, now everything, laws, everything is being, being, Changed around based on gender. But he says it cannot happen in the kingdom. In the kingdom. Equality about everything and all. Equity is one thing. Equality is one thing. But all that cannot get into the church. The church does not work on these spirits. Does not work on this. So what Elijah could not do. 
and Jehu did. And how did Jehu did? Whom did Jehu use? Is the question. Whom did the anointing that was on Jehu use? He used three eunuchs. So the question comes in the new covenant. What are the eunuchs? Who are the eunuchs? There are those who have been made eunuchs themselves. They have made for the sake of the kingdom. Meaning, who is a eunuch? He's gender neutral. He's gender neutral. Okay, so God says that is the kind of leadership in the world or in the kingdom that will ultimately overcome this spirit. You have to be gender neutral. So what Elijah couldn't do, Jehu did through the, though the eunuchs were still there years earlier, if like, it's like God teaching Jacob the lesson in his old age, right? When he is old and Joseph brings his two sons, he's blind. When he tries to, he puts crosses his arms and Joseph says this, he says, I know what I am doing. That in his old age, God is still giving him a lesson saying, do you know why you lost so many years? Do you know why you lost so many years? Because you thought, you, you needed to steal your own blessing. You don't have to steal your own blessing. On that day, when Esau brought the meat cooked after eating, father would have called both and I would have crossed his arms. Okay? So here a lesson is being taught. These eunuchs were still there. If Elijah had gone in and she would have still tried to use seduction and intimidation, he still had to say the same things. Who is there for me? Throw her down. See? What you should have done, somebody else did. Like Jacob, what you should not have done, what your father would have done, and now I am making you do it. Because you did not trust God. You were scared your blessings could be lost. So this is how God teaches. So this is what happened. So you will realize in verse 21. Okay, verse 21, Revelation 2.21. I gave her time. So God is very, very... Patience. This is one of this is one of the biggest attributes, the most important attributes of God towards mankind in this age. In the millennium, there will be no patience. Please understand this. There will be no patience in the millennium. Okay, like I told you, mercy is something only in this life. It's time bound. In the next life, there is no mercy. It's no mercy. It's no mercy. Okay. So God gives even. Jezebel. And if you look into history, you will realize church history, I mean by biblical history, Ahab and Jezebel were given space. But they repented not. And when Ahab repented, God lifted his hand off for a season. Until he went back to his old ways, then God destroyed him. Okay? So when God gives time, we would expect Jezebel to repent. Fire has fallen. All these things have happened. The prophets are all, no? So he says, you know what? I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality. She did not repent. So what will I do? Verse 22, I will cast her into a sickbed. Okay? Literally, pestilence. Okay? Pestilence. I will cast her into. You need to realize there are a lot of sicknesses which is in the body of Christ. Remember, many of you are weak. Many of you are sick. The third stage is sleep. sleep. Okay? Because you are weak. That means you are not able to resist. You are not able to resist. Why are you not able to resist? Because you are still a child. You are not growing up and becoming a youth who in whom the word of God lives where you are able to overcome the wicked one. You are not growing. You refuse to grow. So the next stage I will put you is that I will make you sick. And the third stage God takes 
people is that you don't learn from this too. Now, now don't please misunderstand all sicknesses because of that. But even in the miracles of Jesus, you will see sickness which was not of sin and sickness which was of sin. The man who was brought by the four, the man who was sitting by the pool at Bethesda, always sicknesses because of sin. And Jesus told him, "If you go and sin no more, or something worse." So the only question is, what is worse? It is death. Okay. So I cast her into a sick bed. Those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Okay. So from sick bed, he says, you will move into tribulation. Into tribulation, unless they repent. of their deeds and in verse 23 i will kill her children with death children are those who follow this doctrine okay spiritual children okay i will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know i am he who so it was not written to a specific church but he says i will use this church and what i do to this church as a lesson as a warning to all churches okay if she does not let's look go back to Second uh, Kings chapter ten and verse one. Second Kings chapter ten. Okay, we'll stay in chapter ten, verse one. Ahab had seventy sons in Samaria, and Jehu wrote and sent letters to Samaria to the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders, to those who reared Ahab's son, saying, "Now go to six to eight." Okay, this is what you have to do. Then he wrote a second letter to them, saying. Where did that four come there from? Yeah, that's what I'm looking at. I've never read in the Bible six and then four for like because they never use numbers. No? <laughs> If you are for me and will obey my voice, take the heads of the men, your master's son, and come to me at Jezreel. But this time tomorrow. Now the king's son, seventy persons were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. So it was when the letter came to them, they took the king's son, slaughtered seventy persons, put their head in baskets, and sent them to him at Jezreel. I'll go after your children. So you see, there is a historical, physical truth that God went after the children of Jezebel. All their heads were taken off. Why were their heads cut off and put in baskets? Because the head is the seat of doctrine. So they were not just killed. They were decapacitated. The head was taken out, meaning this doctrine has to die. This doctrine has to die. If you go to verse twenty to twenty-five, another picture. These are pictures, literal pictures. Jehu said, "Proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal." So they proclaimed it, and Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshippers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. So they came into the temple of Baal, and the temple of Baal was full from one end to the other. Then he said to one in charge of the wardrobe, "Bring out vestments for all the worshippers of Baal." So he brought out vestments for them. Then Jehu and Jehonadab the son of Rechab went into the temple of Baal and said to the worshippers of Baal, "Search and see that no servants of the Lord are here, but only the worshippers of Baal." So they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had appointed for himself eighty men on the outside and had said, "If any of the men whom I brought into your hand escapes, who let him es- lets him escape, it shall be his life for the life of the other." So you will see, Jehu does something. He says, "Go." He calls the sons of Rechab. Remember, they are the faithful ones. Said, "Go through and look among them by mistake or some foolishness. Any true worshipper of God is among them." 
So you need to realize even in Thyatira there is faithful ones. It's always a remnant. They could be duped into becoming part of this. Okay, without even realizing. He says, separate them. Get them out. Get them out. And then he says in verse 25, you will see. You know what? Now it happened as soon as he made an end of offering of the burnt offering that Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, go in and kill them. Let no one come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword and the guards and the officers threw them out and went into the inner room of the temple. That's enough. Okay. So you will see there was a historical aspect you can look back to. Now here God is not, he's saying that. <coughs> in the new covenant, I will not ask you to do that. I will only ask you to root the evil out. But if you don't do that, I will do what I did earlier. What I did earlier, I will do. Okay. So God is promising the same thing. He says, I'm the God who does not change. First, I will cast her to a sick bed. Then they will go through tribulation. And then I will execute her children. All those who follow that doctrine, he says, I will take them out. So this is where it comes. The picture comes. Okay. So if you come back to Revelation 2 and verse 23. I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. Okay. So he says, he's talking about, remember, Psalm 139 we had said about, you know, God knows our hearts. God knows our minds. Okay. You can, you can fool anybody. Some people you can fool all the time. Some people you can fool some of the time. But you can never fool God. Never fool God at any time. He can never. He sees it through all. And he who searches the minds and the hearts, I will give to each one of you according to your works. Okay, so God is talking about here. He's talking to Thyatra. All the churches of all times and especially the churches in the last days, he says, you know what? How far are you willing to confront evil? To confront sin. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12 and the first words onwards, okay? Okay. It is kind of, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance a race that is set before us. So when it comes to weight and sin, ultimately, the, we have a whole list in Hebrews 11, but none of them are the actual model because when it came to weight or sin, all of them fell. There's not a single one in that list who did not fall. But we are going to look at somebody who never fell. So look unto Jesus' words too. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Why did he have to go through the cross? Because of sin. Because of sin and sinners. Because of our sin and the hostility of sinners. Set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. So there was two things he had to endure. One was the pain. The other was the shame. Okay, the, the fear of actually, fear of pain. Okay, you need to realize if you look in the word of God, it's consistent. These are the two things that ensnare people. Two things that ensnare people. Either it is fear or it is shame. Even if you're an authentic Christian like Timothy. In Second Timothy, if you know, this is what Paul is telling Timothy about Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse um, 
7. God has not given us. Right? 7 and 8. God has not given us spirit of fear. Who is Timothy? A beloved son, a true son of faith. But God has not given us the spirit of fear. Next verse, do not be ashamed. Okay? Fear and shame. So this man, young man, is caught in it. Fear and shame will never set you free. These are two things. Because the two things Jesus sets you free from. You need to realize one generation, one generation, remember, wandered and died in the wilderness. They could not overcome. Second generation, before they can fight their first battle. Do you know what God deals with? With their shame. You see, it is not circumcision. It is where they were circumcised. And what God is. See, circumcision is a cutting way of the flesh. But with them, what was cut away, because they had no flesh to be cut away. They had come through sanctified to the wilderness and no attachments to Egypt. So what did they have to be rolled away from? From shame of their past. Okay, And a lot of people are driven by these two things, fear and shame. This is what drives them. Ultimately, you have to go because you need to realize when the righteous ask this question, if the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? So the, the, the entire strength of a life or a building is entirely on the foundation. What if your foundation is fear? What can God do? God can't do anything. Then God will ask Jacob, what is your name? Because that's your foundation. Your name is your foundation. You are a deceiver, therefore you are fearful. I cannot bless you with this foundation. I'm going to change your foundation. From today, you are not Jacob, you are Israel. Now I will bless you. And the next thing you see in the picture, he's overcome his fear. He's now running to meet Esau. For 20 years, he had been running away from Esau. Now he's limping and running to feast Esau because he's been set free from the fear and the shame of his past. Because this will cause us to do things and people do not realize they are building on foundations which are false. And God will allow no foundation but Christ. In Christ, everything has been made new. All the past has been put away. So you have to realize this is where doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. Because we need to go, each one of us need to go back and see, go back and see what's the foundation on which I'm building my life. Because so many things which you go through in life and react to it are real, feels authentic, but it's not true. Because you are reacting from your foundations. You're reacting from your foundations. But you have found, that's why the Bible says, let, let every man be careful how he builds. But before you can build, there is only one foundation. What is the foundation? That is Jesus Christ. So in that foundation you have to build. But if you go beyond that and go below and start building on another, see the entire thing about the house which Jesus talked about was entire messages on one word, foundation. Why did that house stand in the midst of the storm, the wind, the flood, everything? Simply because the foundation was true. So the simple thing is that if your life is built on the foundation which is Jesus Christ and what he had spoken, that is important. You see, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, very specifically Genesis chapter 1, if you look at it, God is creating. But every time God creates, He only speaks. And He never doubts what He says. Never ever He doubts what He says. 
And you need to realize, when you read the Bible, do you doubt what he says? Or do you negotiate? When we are talking about coming to that point where your faith is perfect, is where actually you don't doubt anything. Whether you like it or you are irrelevant. This is what he says, that's what I will do. We have to come, when it comes to faith, we have, have to come to the point where Jesus was. The word is truth. Heaven and earth will pass away. Not even a dot will pass away from the word. This is what it is. This is what it will be. It will not ever change. So there is no negotiation with this. Okay. And here what is happening is, the pastor has tolerated. In Pergamos, he has compromised. Here it is toleration. Whenever you tolerate, when you compromise, you have made adjustment. When you tolerate, you have either equated, made it equal, or given one doctrine which is false above the word of God. So that's what God is talking about. So we we have to look. So when it comes to confronting evil, if you go to back to Hebrews 12 and verse 2, and then 3 and 4, we look at Jesus. <clears throat> Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of why why we are focusing on this? Because a lot of people are still fighting battles they should have won years and years ago. But if you don't go to the root of the issue, it, it's 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 like uh, it's like uh, infection a person has. But there are so many symptoms. If you don't go to the root and deal with the infection, and you only deal with the symptoms for a season, it will remain calm, and then it will come back again. That's why when doctors give you antibiotics, they will very clearly say, please take it for five days. Don't stop it two days or three days when you feel good. Feel good. This feel good does not make irrelevant, because you know what? Things can lie dormant for years. Remember, even Jesus, the devil, left him for an opportune time. He can leave you. He can give you a semblance of peace. And you think the infection is over. And then when? It will suddenly surface again. So God says, you want to do something. There are two illustrations used. by One by John the Baptist and the other by Jesus. He says, lay the axe to the root. If you lay axe to the root, you don't have to trim the branches. They will dry off its own. It will just fall away and die. You have to lay axe. You don't have to deal with the symptoms at all. Just lay the axe as the root. He says, you take it off at the root, it will handle. Jesus will put it across in two different ways. He says, if you pull that mulberry water from the root, and cast it into the sea, plant it into the sea, he says, pull it from the root. So he says, you have to go to those fundamental deep. You cannot because you need to realize you are dealing with an entity who has 6,000 years of experience dealing with mankind. And he knows there is nothing new under the sun. From Adam to Solomon, he has seen them all. He knows every human being what to do. And he is willing to wait. Even with Isaac, he is willing to wait. You won't leave an Isaac alone. By the time somebody has allowed himself to be tied on the altar, a dagger has been, he'll say, this guy, leave him alone. It's pointless. It is pointless. He did not leave Job alone. Only thing, because of the hedge, he couldn't do anything. 
because God had put a head, she couldn't do anything. But the minute he got an opportunity, he went after him. He went after him. So we need to realize we are dealing with entities and God has given us a solution. The solution he says, go to the root. Check your foundations. Check your foundation. Okay. And then another real life illustration Jesus sees. Jesus sees a fig tree all green. When he goes there, no fruit. And he does one thing. He curses it. The next thing they see the next day morning is the tree has dried up from the root. Okay, dried up from the root. So Jesus tells about things. Okay, if you have something in your life, it looks very green, very flourishing, but it's actually bearing no fruit in the kingdom. Curses from the root. Curses from the root. You know why we say that term in English? You're just occupying space. If somebody else had been in your space, you would have brought forth fruit. That's what he's telling Israel. They would have brought forth fruit. So what is the issue? The issue is with foundations. Okay. And that is why doctrine is foundational. It's foundational. So going back, he says, look at Jesus. Look at how he addressed this. Go to verse 3 now. Hebrews 12. Who consider him. What did he endure? On the cross he endured sin. While walking on earth, he endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. Okay, you need to realize, Jesus' life on earth was not easy, especially the last three and a half years, because he endured such hostility from sinners. I will put it across this way. Okay, I'm in the ministry. I'm in the ministry. Okay, we are ministers. We are pastors. And congregation is there. Congregation is one thing. But there is one kind of fellowship and encouragement and appreciation we would like, which is from the same breed, that is pastors. Okay? Now imagine every pastor in the city is hostile towards us. Every pastor in the city is hostile towards us. And every day planning and plotting to shut our church down. We'll also get weary and discouraged, right? You need to realize the entire religious class, starting from the high priest, was against Jesus. The class that should have received him. Okay? If you look at it, there are only two preachers. One is John, the other is Jesus. John, they took him out. Now their entire eyes are on Jesus. So the hostility he's facing is from the group that should have received him. And yet, and what happens is, you grow weary. You grow weary. Right? Like if you look at, if you look at, uh, modern day examples, where they are listening over there, if you look at President Trump, okay, the people love him. But the hostility from the governing class and the media, we should have received him. But the Hostility from the opposing party, understandable. Your own party and the media. Okay. So what happens? After some time you grow weary and tired, discouraged. And what do you say? People quit. People quit. He says, you know what? What's the point? What's the point? You quit. Okay. This is the first thing 
David has to encounter in the public realm. When he is brought into the public realm by by God's accident, incident, man's accident, father said, go check on your brothers, take this. When he comes, Goliath comes, he hears the challenges. And when he says, what will be done to this man who takes his head off, his brothers seethe with rage. Okay. Now, when you come to the army, all the soldiers are strangers and you have your brothers there. The one's appreciation you want is from you. They turn against you. Turn against you. How do you overcome this? Overcome it by David's attitude. What did David say? Is there not a cause? That's why Jesus said, seek my kingdom first, because that is a cause that is bigger than everything in life, and it is eternal. Why is he asking us to seek these things? We need to ask ourselves, what are the different reasons he's putting? Why do you seek the kingdom first? Because he says, there will be a situation in your life you will want to quit, but if you seek the quitting, even when you grow weary, you will just encourage yourself and still continue. And you will see that is David. In Samuel 30, he comes to the end. He's literally all alone. And the Bible says he encouraged himself. Because there was nobody to encourage him. So what happens when there is nobody to encourage you? How do you encourage? There is a cause bigger than your own life. Because people want to die. Those kind of devil want to kill. You want to die. Job's wife wanted him to commit. All kind of things people go through. So you need a cause which is bigger than the temporal. You need a cause. So the Bible says, he did not become weary or discouraged in his soul because you know why. He had a cause bigger. He endured it because he saw the joy that was set before him on the other hand. And verse 4 it says, when it comes to our striving against evil, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. The question is, how far will you go? So the Bible talks about Revelation 12.11, the overcomers. It is said, the first we like, the second we like, third one is the important. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. By the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives to death. That is the key. In your striving against sin, how far will you resist? How far will you resist? That's the question. In your striving, how far will you resist? Will you go to the, if you are given the only two options, live or die, what will you choose? Live, compromise. Don't compromise, die. What will you choose? The thing is that you cannot choose it on that day. You have to choose it today. Who do you love most? Okay, who do you love most? Okay, you love God. You love truth. You love truth. Because who are the ones who will be allowed to go into delusion because they did not receive the love of truth? Love of truth. So, doctrine matters. Because even in this church, you need to, God says, you know what? When it comes to this, be ruthless. Be ruthless. Uncompromising. Ultimately, I will tell you, you have to be ruthless in dealing with these issues in your own life. Let's leave others alone. 
because you are very good at uh, rooting out <laughs> sin from others life god says that's not what jesus did what jesus did was he rooted it out in his own life he never compromised for the first 30 years you didn't see him at all he was dealing with his own life tempted at all points and never sinned that is the first 30 years then the father said now go get baptized okay now he is facing the hostility of sinners Okay, so in his personal life, you need to realize. So God is saying, if when you come to this, first root it out in your own life. Of course, show mercy to the others like Jesus showed. But when it comes to doctrine, when you come to doctrine, be unflexible, inflexible. But doctrine is truth. The gentlest of apostles, Second John chapter one, verses seven to eleven. Okay. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This deceiver, this is a deceiver and an antichrist. Why is it so important that we have to believe Jesus came in the flesh? Because if he did not come in the flesh, he is not an atonement. He is not an atonement. Okay? It's not an atonement. There are many reasons behind it. Like, even the, like if you realize everybody loves the cross, but he did not die on it. Everybody loves Jesus, but he did not die on it. If he did not die on it, then the problem is sin is still there. It's not been dealt with. Okay. Second reason you need to realize, if he did not come in the flesh, he was not tempted. He was not tempted, but he came in the flesh. He was tempted at all points and did not sin. So if that is true... If he came in the flesh, we are also in the flesh. So if he was tempted at all points and he did not sin, we also can be tempted and not sin. See, these are all escapes. So people will see this antichrist, antinominism, it's all part of it. The deceptive doctrine just come into and says, as long as you are in the flesh, you can never overcome. The question is, who said so? You cannot be perfect. That is not possible. That's a different thing. Only God is. Okay? Because, but the fact that you can overcome. If you cannot overcome, then there are no rewards. Because rewards are only for overcomers. All these rewards are just uh, flash in the pan, fooling people. Okay? So, the question is, in your battle against sins, how far are you willing to go? How far are you willing to go? So, the Bible says, there are deceivers. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourself. We do not lose those things which we worked for but that we may receive a full reward. So it's talking about eternity. Hey, in your personal internal journey of sanctification, please don't lose. You worked so hard. You fought sin. You could never compromise in your life. You have come this far. Don't buckle now under pressure. Because some new teaching, fanciful teaching has come in there. Don't buckle under pressure. That we may receive a full reward. So there is something called a full reward. That means there is something called a partial reward also. And we come to verse 9. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ. So there is only one doctrine in the church which is the doctrine of Christ. Does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. He says you can feed the beggar, but don't feed the fellow who comes with the false doctrine. The beggar won't destroy your soul. But this dude will. 
don't even receive him. Do you need to realize why a doctrine is, you need to understand why is it that in Acts chapter 8 when persecution arose, all those who scattered went around preaching the word because they were founded in the doctrine of Christ. So persecution did not change their doctrine. See, Job's doctrine was one, his wife's doctrine was another. You can have the two in the same bed with two different doctrines. But what tests you is persecution, tribulation. What tests you? So why does God allow trials? The Bible says, beloved, be of exceedingly great joy or receive. That's James chapter 1 and verse 2. Okay? When you go trials of various kinds. Okay? James 1, 2 or 3. Okay? Chapter 1 and verse 2 or 3. It should be 2. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Because that's the testing of your doctrine. Your faith is your doctrine. Is the doctrine true or not? Which gospel did you believe in? So you could see Job had one doctrine. His wife had another doctrine. What is the thing that tested their doctrine? Tribulation. Trial came. In one day they lost everything. Job's doctrine still stood. He still worshipped. His wife cursed. So doctrine matters. But doctrine will be tested. So God allows all these things. So God will use trials to test doctrine. And God will use tribulation to get rid of false doctrine. So this woman, if she does not repent, she and her children, I will throw into their bed of tribulation. Bed of tribulation. And he says, death. Okay, death. So please understand there. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. So you need to realize, if you go back to chapter, say, Revelation 2, 24, 25, okay, 24, 25, you will see there. Now I say to you, to the rest in Thyatira, so there is a rest, there is a remnant over there. As many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan. You will realize that in every cult, they always have a revelation of deep things. Deep secrets. It's always secret. Always secret. You cannot have access into that unless you become a part of them. These depths of Satan. It's been there for centuries. It's been there. Centuries it's been there. Hundreds, thousands of years. God says, be careful. As far as the rest of you are there who do not have this doctrine, I will say, I will put on you no other burden. Okay, he says, you're good. You're good. That's what he said, 19. You got it all good. But it's not enough that you're good. You need to hang on to it till the end. That is the key. You need to hang on to the end. Don't drop it. Don't quit. Stay faithful till the end. So you will see in Revelation, these were the ones who followed the Lamb. Those who were called the chosen and the faithful. Will you remain faithful till the end? Doesn't matter whether you are faithful now. It's good. You are faithful now. The question is, will I remain faithful to Christ till the end? And nobody is finished. Nobody is finished. We looked about finishing. Nobody is finished. Okay, we saw many, many good people in the Bible. No, like you, Noah didn't finish really well. 
Abraham, if you look, didn't really finish well. He finished his purpose. God's purpose in his life he finished, but he didn't finish his personal race well. There are two things. You can finish God's purpose in your generation and not personally finish well. You can personally finish well without finishing his purpose. These are two different things. And if you look in Acts chapter, I mean, you don't have to go there. Paul wants to do both. He wants to finish his purpose, his ministry, and also finish his race personally well. And that's what he says in Second Timothy, that he did both. Because we need to be very careful, okay? You can finish your internal journey so well, really sanctified, holy, kept it, but yet didn't fulfill the purpose. The task that was assigned to you. Task that was assigned to you. Meaning, if you look at Elijah, he went up sanctified Elijah, but he didn't finish his purpose. Somebody else had to finish his purpose. Somebody else had to finish his purpose. So you look at Abraham, you look at Isaac, you look at Jacob. He finished. You look at Joseph, he finished both. Moses did not. Moses, he had a purpose. He didn't finish his, he finished his race well. He finished, sanctified everything. God took him and buried him. Did he finish his purpose? No, he was supposed to take them in the promised land. He didn't. He didn't. So you have to look at this. This is where the balance comes. We can have to finish our personal journey of sanctification, finish it well, blameless on that day. And he will do it if we cooperate. Then there is another thing. What has God asked you to do in your generation, your calling? What did God ask you to do? You have to finish that too. So God says here, hang until the end. Hang until the end. Hold fast what you have Till I come. What is the point? Till I come. Either we go or he comes. So you will realize, no, nowhere does he say, um, only to Smyrna he says, be faithful unto death. Right? To Smyrna he does not promise about, uh, I'm coming. Okay? He says, you will die. You will die. So there are two churches, ultimately in the Bible you look at, two churches are there. One is the church in the persecuted churches, many of them will die before he comes. Every generation they have been killed for their faith. But there is others who will not die. So they have to remain faithful till the end. But the demand is the same. Whether you are executed, be faithful till death. Whether you are not, you live to an old, ripe old age, remain faithful. The condition has not changed. You have to remain faithful till the end. Hold fast what you have till I come. And then, be, let me look at the time. Okay. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. Okay. Again, you have to read it very carefully. First thing, like we see in the book of Revelation, everything is promised to the overcomers. But he has to keep my works until the end, not your works. Okay, this is our struggle, our struggle. If you go to Hebrews chapter 4 and read from verses 9 to 10, 9, 10, 11, if I'm right. Therefore, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of his disobedience. So the first call of God 
It's not work. It's not work. It's rest. Well, yesterday when we were looking in the Nepali service, we looked at different aspects of it. The first is, that is God who speaks. God who speaks. The blessing or the purpose, the call, whatever you want to call it, that is God who speaks. If God does not speak, Abraham will die in error of the Chaldeans. God who speaks. And as soon as God speaks, the first call of God is to separate. It's a separation. It goes through the sword. That's what Jesus is talking. It doesn't matter where you are born. The sword will go through your family. I will separate. He says, I have not. When it comes to this thing, he says, I have not come to bring peace. I have to bring division. The sword will go through. It will divide husband and wife, parents and children. It will just cut through. Why? Because the first demand after the call is separation. Okay. And the separation will continue all your life. Until at one point in your life, that in Abraham's case, in Mount Moriah, he realizes he's separated completely unto God. There's nothing that is holding between him and God. So God will take you through that process. We throw it through the process. Then there is God's blessing. But God's blessing has to come only go through God's way. It cannot happen in any other way. It will doesn't matter how wonderful it is, how blessed it is, how magnificent it is. It will not, God will have no covenant with it. He will allow it to prosper if you cry. That is Ishmael. The method is Hagar. The way is Hagar. The blessing is called Ishmael, but God has got nothing to do with it. But because you keep on crying, God says, I will bless it. But it will only bring tension in your life. Only tension in your life. So there is God, His call, His blessing, His way. The work has to be done in His power. It cannot be done in your power. That is the issue. That's where rest comes. Power. So it has to be Sarah. But the problem is Sarah can't bear anything. And Abraham is too old. This is where we identify what we are doing. If I can do it without God, it's not God's work. It's not God's work. If I cannot do it without God, it is my work. Remember the question I asked a few weeks in the, in, 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 asked in the church and I asked the pastors and always ask this, look at all your problems, write down all your problems in your life and then ask this question. If I have a certain amount of money, will these problems be solved? And most people, the answer is yes. Most people, the answer is yes. So it is not God. It is not God. Okay. Abraham can have all the money in the world. He can go to the best fertility clinic in the 21st century. Sarah is not going to bear. It is not going to happen. Her womb is dead and she is old. It is not going to happen unless God intervenes. Okay. Moses can do whatever he wants. He can train the best set of slaves. He can have an insurrection. He's not going to win. There will be a bloodbath in Egypt. But if you're going to bring the people out God's way, not a single soul will be lost. And Pharaoh will bend his knee. And you have to do nothing. And you know it is of God. It is of God. You go through the Bible, you will see every time any man or woman did a work of God, you knew only God could have done it. It was impossible for a man to do it. It was impossible for. And the same application you bring into your life and say, Lord, 
So God says, first you need to rest. You have to enter into my rest. Every day you have to labor to enter into my rest. Then I will tell you what to do. And when I tell you to what to do, you will realize it's not possible. It's possible. But you will do it anyway. And then you will see the result. And you will see the result and you will know it was me and not you. That is how it works. That is how it works. And what does it bring? Ishmael brings tension. Isaac brings laughter. Okay. Isaac brings laughter. This is how you look. This is what he is telling the church. He says, hang in there. Hang in there. My works, not your works. Honestly, I look back. We all look back into our lives and we look back post-salvation. How many of our works were his works? Therefore, you will hear like us pastors when we give testimonies. Remember, our testimonies are always connected to do with God because we know that work was God. It was impossible for us to do it. When we come to certain, we don't share all our life because we know it is not a testimony. <laughs> we know it is not a, it's not a testimony. But there are certain testimonies we will share because we know it is simply humanly impossible. Humanly impossible. Okay. Like yesterday I was sharing with them. How is it possible that you sit here in Hyderabad? One Nepali person listening. That one also won't listen properly. A Nigerian sitting in Lagos singing in a language he doesn't understand. A Malayali preaching here in Nepal and people from around the world listen and write back to me. How is it possible? Is there any church, a Nepali church in the entire world like that? No. There isn't. I have three people sitting here, one with the camera. None of them understand a word which I am saying. How is it possible? From DC to New York to Alaska to everywhere they are writing. From Israel they are writing me. If I don't preach one week, they are all writing. Why didn't you preach? One week, two weeks back I preached short and I preached at 7.30. The road of pastor was good today but he short very, preached only less. Maybe he's upset. You ask this question, how is this possible? How is it possible? See, people are, people don't see our setting. How is it possible? So, our whole life is not a testimony. We have testimonies in between which we know is the supernatural work of God. And every time you have to reach there, you could only step by faith. Step by faith. So, he is telling the church over there in Revelation 2.24. He says, he who overcomes... And keeps my works until the end. To him I will give power over nations. Now the rewards is being mentioned. This is the first reward is that I will give you authority over nations. And you know what? The revelation that is given to John the apostle is straight from Psalm 2. If you go to Psalm 2, verses 6 to 9. Okay, talks about the son. Okay, who he sits on the throne and he laughs. Six to nine. This is what it says. I yet have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. 
I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends for your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron. You shall dash, dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So Psalm 2, when you come to Revelation 2, the church in Thyatira is being promised. He says to the overcomers, you know what? He who overcomes, keeps my works until the end. To him I will give power over the nations and he is meaning you shall rule with him. He okay. You he will delegate his authority to them. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. This is basically talking about the millennial rule. For a thousand years the overcomers will rule. And the thing they have given unbelievable authority and power that no sin will be allowed to manifest at all. Instant it will be. Judgment will be instant and the saints can see through. There will be no vestige because the scepter of his kingdom is the scepter of righteousness. But how will it be enforced? With a rod of iron. The rod of iron. And anyone who breaks the law of righteousness, they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. He says, the authority I have give, I have received, I will give it to you. So the first thing God talks about is he, is, he will rule. He will exercise that authority, but it will be an iron rule. The righteous will be happy, the sinners will be unhappy. But you, you, nobody can complain. Nobody can complain. There will be everything that you want for life. Absolutely beautiful earth. You read Isaiah 65 and all. You will see what, how everything will be restored. Beautiful earth. No war. It's all peace and prosperity. Everything. But one thing will not be allowed. Sin will not be allowed. Sinners will be there. In nature. Born in sin, shaped in iniquity. Sinners will be there. But sin will not be allowed to be manifested. And who will rule over them? The overcomers. Who have they overcome? They have overcome sin. They have overcome sin. Remember, they have overcome sin. So they will be given the authority to rule over sinners. If there is somebody who entered into eternity, saved eternity, but never overcame sin, how can he be given authority over sinners? How can he be given authority over what he never overcame? You have to logically think, because the Bible is also a very logical book. Right? It's not an illogical book. So God says, if you overcome sin, as I overcame sin, and in your battle against sin, you should be willing to resist even to the shedding of blood. Then during the millennial rule, there will be sinners, and they will multiply, and they will live long. They will live long. The youngest will be 100 years old. They will live long. I'll give you authority. I'll give you authority. Okay, it will be an iron rule. Okay. We'll stop there. I don't want to go to the morning star today. Because the next next verse in Revelation 2, you know. Yeah, and verse 28. And I will give him the morning star. Because that's a that itself is a huge thing because there are two people called the morning star in the Bible. One is Satan and one is Jesus. They're both called morning star. Okay, and what's the difference between these? Both are called lions. One is regal and majestic, the other devours, but both are called lions. Okay, Satan is called Lucifer, actually means morning star or light bearer. And Revelation 22, 16, if I'm right, Jesus says, I am the morning, bright and the morning star. Okay, so that is also there, but 
we will stop there so keep this in mind we are fighting a battle and it is worth it it is worth it it is worth it it's worth because you know what god is not telling us in random fight if you look you have to go through the book of revelation specially and go through the rewards rewards no they get tickled, you know, like one of our kids in GSS, you know, she said, Papu, I have a debate. I said, what's the debate on it? She said, on AI, for or again. She said, again. So I said, okay, these, 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 these are the tips you use. Okay. And she won the debate. See, people do not know you get more information in the church than in the outside world, what is true and false. Her teacher was bamboozled. He said, where did you get all this information from? She said, my father is very wise. <laughs> okay. So I said, text her and ask her, okay, since you got this thing, uh, shall I give you something to buy your bilburi? This order, okay, no? So, that's what God says, if you overcome, you'll get a reward. But everybody wants a reward without overcoming. But Father says, in my house, I'll take care of all of you. But rewards, so people confuse salvation with rewards. Okay, salvation is a gift. It is not a, you cannot work for your salvation because it's a gift can only receive it by faith. It's a gift. The gift of salvation. But rewards is not a gift. It's not a gift. Post-salvation, you have to work at it. You have to work at it. And in working at it, please remember, there are two aspects of life. One is internal. You have to allow truth. You have to deal with fear and shame and all those things that are in These are all inside. Remember the seven nations. You have to destroy them. You should not cut them from, from the young ones also have to be slaughtered. Remember, not even let no sympathy in your internal. Sympathy outside, inside no. Then the external. What do you want me to do? Lots of people don't ask this question sincerely. Because they are scared to ask this question. That's the first question Saul of Tarsus asked. What do you want me to do? I believe he must have asked early in life also when he was a good, kosher Jewish boy, what do you want you to do? And the father said, I want you to be, a, I got all the money, you don't worry about it. I want you to be part of the Sanhedrin. I want you to be this class. And he went that way. Then, when he was young, he had an encounter with Jesus Christ and he asked him the question, what do you want me to do? He didn't realize the answer to the question was he would lose everything he had earned. Everything, including his life. A lot of people are scared to ask God, what do you want me to do? Because they are scared of the answer. But that's what Jesus said. If you love your life, you will lose it. You will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, for the gospel, for the kingdom, eternally you will find it. So these two things are there. Two things are there. And we have to be balanced. You have to run both. Finish both. It's not enough that you finish one and don't finish two. It's not enough that you finish two and don't finish one. You have to finish both. And if you look at it, there are just few people in the Old Testament. There is a Joseph, there is a Jacob, there is a Daniel. Very few people. Elisha, I'm not sure. I'm still not sure. I'm not sure why he died of a sickness. We only know the miracles of Elisha. We don't know the life of Elisha. We don't know much about Elisha. So certain things are hidden in the Bible. We do not know much about many people. But I do believe they were, they were wonderful people. Job is mentioned by God. Noah is mentioned by God. And who is the third one mentioned? Three writers. 
Yeah, three, so God is saying these three were looking at their tenacity, how they are hung in. Because, you, see, your pressure, you see, you need to understand. I understand pressure very well because everything is an illustration teaching for me. When I make uh, mass breakfast in the morning, okay, when I make mass breakfast in the morning, I'm making the porridge for her. You see, when you're making the porridge in the beginning, the spoon moves very easily. And as it gets thicker and thicker and thicker, the resistance increases, okay? It is not moving easily. So you need to realize why God commends Noah. Is how did he stand alone in a, in a generation where every thought of their mind and heart was wicked and evil? So it is not, it is, you, people are not judged by what they come through. They are also judged by in what situation they came through. How did Joseph survive in the Pharaoh's court in Egypt? 30 to 110. How many years is that? 80 years. Uncompromising. Remained a Hebrew, sat alone and ate until his family came. He ate alone. So God looks at our situation. It's a pressure. Please remember, he does not judge by what he sees. So he's looking into everybody's situation and he's saying, you know what? This is how I will judge you. He'll say, oh, pastor, Lord, I came to you. Your situation was very easy. You had no resistance at all. Father was angel, mother was cherubim, brothers and sisters were all little cherubs. You had no issue. You were born into a Bible-believing church. Everything was good for you. You had no resistance. You should have done better. If this was given to somebody else, you would have run faster than you. That's what he's telling Israel. But another one is born in an absolutely dysfunctional family. Father has four wives and the brothers don't like you. Mother is dead. Everything is a mess over there. No testimony, no witness. And in the middle of it, you come through and God says, you know what, that's a testimony. That's a testimony. That is Joseph. That's a testimony. That's how we have to read. Because we are not, our races are different. It's, it, two races cannot be seen because none of us have identical backgrounds. And the iniquity that has been purged, the curses, all that. Nobody is running the same race. But the rewards are the same. He who overcomes. Let's have Peter. And then we sh- I shall pray. My wife is not praying today. She's not well. But she shall be well. Father, this morning we just come to you, Lord. We have looked into your word and your word has looked into us. And I pray, Father, this morning for everyone out there, Lord, fighting this battle, some for years and years and years and years, O oh Lord, facing such hostility, Father, in the world. The hostility of sinners. I pray they will not grow weary. Because your word promises he who holds on to your works till the end. One day, till be all rewarded. In our battle against sin, in our dedication to our mission to which you have called us as a church, we will not quit. Both the personal and the corporate. Doesn't matter how difficult it seems, doesn't matter how many times we may falter and fall. I pray we will wake up each morning to a new day, new mercies. Enter into your presence, receive that grace, that mercy, and continue that good fight. 
Continue that good fight. And offer that body all over again on this new day as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto you. And then we can stand on the promise, the body for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And I pray this morning for those who are not well, so many in the body of Christ here around the world, I speak healing. We have the promise for both, Lord. In Mark 16, those who are not well, there is promise for healing. And for those who are well, there is a promise of immunity. Both given by the same God. So I pray, Father, for both. If there is somebody ill in a family, I pray you would heal them. And yet make the rest of the family immune from the infection. Because we look into your word. If you lay hands upon the sick, they shall be healed. But if you take poison, you will not be harmed. By faith, by faith, we look at your word. And your word is truth. It is not susceptible to man's feelings or the vagaries of nature. It is truth. Let the seeds break. Let there be that abundance promised in the new covenant be there so that everyone in the body of Christ can be givers like their father in heaven that's Pastor Eric and his household Pastor Reuben and his household the new baby that has come Anisha's sister's baby Pastor Naveen Pastor Ramesh all the pastors who come. Pastor Emmanuel struggling. Commit them all into thy hands, O Lord. I pray your servants will learn each day to look up. Not look around. Look up. For we know where our help comes from. Not from the hands of men. God may use them. But from the maker of heaven and earth. Pray every servant will look up. We will know. Our redemption is near. We take authority in the name of Jesus. I bind every power of darkness operating against the body of Christ. We bind you in the name of Jesus. We command you to leave the body of Christ. No weapon that is formed against us will prosper. Every lying tongue that rises against us in judgment, in occult, in witchcraft, in sorcery, whatever form of darkness it will fall to the ground because we know what our armor is we know what our breastplate is we know what we are covered by the righteousness of God which we received by faith we stand in that righteousness we rebuke you Satan in the name of Jesus we shall prevail over all your devices in the name of the Lord we will prevail. We just thank you. We praise you. We worship you, Lord. Believing by the word and by prayer, we have been sanctified. We lift up holy hands and we bless your holy name. We bless your holy name. We bless your holy name. And standing here in this house, we once again declare, Thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever.